I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. The government to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. This night we'll share a lover on that dark radio. How the soul may be so lonely. Hands pressed cold against the phone. See all the stars descending by the In 2006, researchers at Cornell University released results of a long-term study containing some hypotheses about the reorganization of television in the 1980s. The research project assembled data to suggest a correlation between television viewing by very young children and autism. What is of note in the Cornell University study is that it presupposes how television has a direct biological affect. Prairie notes that the study made the heretical suggestion that television might have a catastrophic physical impact on the developing human being, that it could produce extreme, permanent impairments. It bypassed the notion that television is something one watches in some attentive manner and instead provisionally treated it as a source of light and sound to which one is exposed. It means reconsidering the exposure in terms of lasting physical damage.
I studied psychology in graduate school, I again had the chance to perform experiments and observations on all sorts of animals. I saw the embryo of an angelfish grow from a few single cells to a fully finned thing and 48 hours flat, life putting together its puzzle pieces right before my eyes. I saw stroke victims deny the right sides of their faces and blind sight patients mysteriously read letters despite their dead eyes. I observed people waiting for elevators and had this as my salient question. Why is it that people continuously press the button when they're waiting in the lobby, even though they know, if interviewed, that it won't make the elevator come any faster? What does elevator behavior say about human beings?
at the coattails of Reverend Oreo as he rides his motorbike on a paved road circling the base of the world's highest freestanding mountain. Kilimanjaro rises out of the parched East African plain as only a volcano can, its icy peak towering three miles above a sea of yellow grass. The Reverend makes the trip every morning. Bike and rider shudder as he turns onto a track of packed red earth that leads uphill. The breeze turns cooler and the land greener. Mountain streams feed farms and groves. The hooded heads of acacia trees become tangled like manes. Halfway up the mountain, Reverend Oreo switches off the engine and parks outside a church made from cement and corrugated iron. He removes his helmet and coat, exposing short cropped hair and a dog collar. He says he doesn't mind the 90-minute ride from Moshi, the regional capital, to the village of Mishiri, where he was appointed pastor a few weeks ago. He enjoys overtaking the minibus he would otherwise have to squeeze into. the country when I call across the world I see it in my kitchen I can picture you now as you toast to your small town and you drink the happy hour I'm in London still I'm in London still I'm in London still I took the tube over to Camden to wander around I bought some funky records with that old Motown sound And I miss you like my left arm that's been lost in a war Today I dream of home and not of London anymore I'm in London still I'm in London still Thank you. 
they developed a radical new philosophy, the North American model of wildlife conservation. The model is strikingly egalitarian. To this day, America's wildlife belongs to the public, not landowners. Wild animals are supposed to be killed for food or population control, not mere trophy collection. Their harvest is regulated by state and federal authorities. Wildlife officials are mostly funded by hunters through licenses and game stamps and are guided by scientific advice. To the founders of the modern American hunt, frivolous killing could not be ethical, let alone sporting. Drawing on biblical codes of morality, they declared that the role of hunting was to feed a young nation and, in Roosevelt's phrase, to keep men hardy so that at need they can show themselves fit to take part in work or strife for their nation's land.
When his neighbor discovered gold in a Californian river in 1848, Sam Brannan could have kept quiet about it. Instead, he filled a jar with gold dust and rushed around the streets of San Francisco shouting, Gold! 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 He had good reason to incite a gold rush. He owned a shop nearby. He became California's first millionaire by selling picks, shovels, beans and bacon to the horde of prospectors who heeded his call. Gold fever spread fast. The lure of buried treasure sucked nearly every free hand and available arm to the gold mines. They tore themselves from warm hearths and good homes, promising to return. They fled from cold hearts and bad debts, vowing never to return. The Alta California, a local paper, reported that the whole country resounds to the sordid cry of gold, gold, gold. It added that this would be the last issue for a while, since all its staff were heading for the goldfields. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions.
Moments of triumph, moments of despair, moments of high drama, and, as in all lives, long stretches of the quotidian. Of such were all royal lives made, and we lose much if we neglect the uncrowded years of a monarch's life in favour of the highly illuminated and much better documented eras of turmoil and memorable events. In particular, we lose much in not investigating royal childhoods, which were so often formative. Would Henry VII have been a very different sort of man if he had not been born to a 13-year-old mother and had not spent his own first 13 years as a prisoner? Would Queen Elizabeth II have been less affected by the unhappy marriages of her own children had she not enjoyed an exceptionally happy and loved childhood herself? And what of the torturous childhood of the future Edward VII, when, as Prince of Wales, he screamed and raged, bit his tutors and his brother, and broke furniture in his frustration?
Are there any of your positions that are salaried or is it quite simply that you're all volunteers? In Colchester, we certainly are totally reliant on volunteers. We have a team of 125. Some of those people are listening volunteers and man the phones, reply to emails, reply to texts, and also see callers who come in to visit the centre and have a face-to-face -face interview. And we also have a very healthy team of support volunteers and they do all sorts of things like running the book fairs which happen every month. We have somebody who takes care of our IT problems which are constant as you can imagine and people who are health and safety officers all sorts of roles that support us so that we can do our job and keep the callers coming in and being listened to. You talk about face-to-face, -face. how are those situations handled? Because at points of crisis, people can be incredibly emotional and sometimes that can border on the physical. Is that ever an issue? We're always prepared for that, but in 24 years, I've never known it to be a problem. People do come in for a visit. If it looked as if they might be belligerent, then we obviously wouldn't let them into the centre. But most people come in are very upset, very much in need of someone to listen to them. And we have an interview here in this interview room here in the centre. We sit in there, we offer them a cup of tea and a biscuit, and they can stay for as long as it takes to talk through what's bothering them. We do do outreach work, face-to-face -face interviews outside the branch. We have our van here, which we take to places like Clacton, and in the back of the van we have interview facilities so somebody can come in and talk to a Samaritan in the way they would in the branch. Nothing kills enthusiasm like official approval, as the face of the national language in the Republic of Ireland shows. There, people often say, Irish was beaten out of us by the English and then beaten back into us by our Catholic teachers. A few years ago, a young television reporter, Manhan McGann, toured Ireland speaking nothing but Irish. Although he had nice surprises, like a surreal chat about contraceptives with a Donegal chemist who couldn't recall some vital anatomical terms, in his native Dublin he mostly met blank stares and concluded that, in the capital at least, the language was virtually dead.
I taught for 30 years in some of the worst schools in Manhattan and in some of the best. And during that time, I became an expert in boredom. Who then is to blame? We all are. My grandfather taught me that. One afternoon when I was seven, I complained to him of boredom and he batted me hard on the head. He told me that I was never to use that term in his presence again. That if I was bored, it was my fault and no one else's. The obligation to amuse and instruct myself was entirely my own. And people who didn't know that were childish people to be avoided if possible. Certainly not to be trusted. That episode cured me of boredom forever.
Tihar Jail in Delhi has a special wing just for her. Young women fear and revere her. Their husbands seem crushed by her embrace. On television, she is a sari-clad battle axe. Books about her offer advice, including "Run, she is trying to kill you." If you think the fearsome reputation of the Indian sas is exaggerated, glance at online discussion threads such as "I have a mother-in-law from hell." Tales abound of humiliation, intrusion, even death threats amid battles over who controls family life. Or watch what was formerly India's most popular soap opera, the clunky title of which doubled as a plot summary, because the mother-in-law was once a daughter-in-law too. Kayunki Sas B Kabi Bahu T. I 
beat so fast it felt like I was drunk City lights lay out before us And your arm felt nice wrapped round my shoulder And I, I had a feeling that I belonged I, I had a feeling I could be someone Be someone, be someone You got a fast car. I got a job that pays all our bills. Instead of drinking, they got the bar. See more your friends than you do your kids. I'd always hope for better. Thought maybe together you and me find it. I got no plans, I ain't going nowhere. Take your fast car and keep on driving. So I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. So fast, I felt like I was drunk City lights stay out before Your arm felt nice wrapped round my shoulder And I, I had a feeling that I belonged I, I had a feeling I could be someone Be someone, be someone You got a fast car Fast enough so you can fly away You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way It's nearly six months since my visit to Lord's and although I've done nothing to pursue my dream in the intervening period, I now see that fate has decided to deliver it to me personally and on a silver platter. Looking at this advertisement in the classified pages of today's Guardian, I suddenly sense what Conan Doyle's Spedigue must have felt when the test selector came across him in that forest clearing. All those so-called wasted years, in his case, lobbing a ball over a rope, in mine, muttering whispered commentaries to myself as I pushed those rollers back and forth across the lino, are going to pay off. This is the moment when life makes sense. The moment when I finally get to become a cricket commentator. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions. Dressed to wear on Sunday. Day. 
On dark evenings in late 1916, a frail 76-year-old man could often be seen shuffling furtively between the Dove, a pub in West London, and the green and gold turrets of Hammersmith Bridge. Passers-by paid no attention, for there was nothing about Thomas Cobden Sanderson's nightly walks to suggest that he was undertaking a peculiar and criminal act of destruction. Between August 1916 and January 1917, Cobden Sanderson, a printer and bookbinder, dropped more than a tonne of metal printing type from the west side of the bridge. He made around 170 trips in all from his bindery beside the pub, a distance of about half a mile, and always after dusk. At the start, he hurled whole pages of type into the river. Later, he threw it like birdseed from his pockets. Then he found a small wooden box with a sliding lid, for which he made a handle out of tape, perfect for sprinkling the pieces into the water, and not too suspicious to bystanders.
Google leverages instrumentation internally to optimize its people management by analyzing the formal, informal, and personal information its employees generate throughout the day. Google tries to know all of its roughly 57,000 employees in much more detail than is typical in a large enterprise, and works to personalize career trajectories for its entire staff. Laszlo Bach, senior advisor at Google, and former senior vice president of people operations, or human resources, at the company, points to the positive economic impact this approach generates, better recruitment, retention, and job satisfaction rates, all with an associated financial implication, then found at competitors. The code halos around its people allow Google to apply the same type of rigor to its people-based decisions as it does to its engineering decisions. I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. I'll be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Colm Radio.